In times of crisis, people take stock of what is valuable to them. Research shows that divorces spike in the aftermath of war. So do births. During natural disasters, people step into new roles as protectors and defenders. And during times like we've experienced lately, of social unrest and isolation due to coronavirus, some people have done a hard reset on what's important in their lives. They are figuring out what they stand for. That reboot of values might occur at several points during our lives. It happened to Theodore Chow back in 2001. One day changed everything for him. Years before, he became an Ohio State researcher unraveling how to make mathematics accessible to kids. He was a new Johns Hopkins graduate, 22 years old and flying high, making a boatload of money at a dot-com startup in New York City. The basis was, if you give cameras to youth-oriented groups, breakdancers, BMX bicyclers, uh, people who uh, do uh, improv comedy, and you allow them to just sort of film a lot of their skits and the things they do, and then we hire a team of editors, cut them into bite-sized chunks, and you put this content online, you, you get, you know, in many ways these small snippets of what life is like in these, in these subcultures that might not often get a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of attention. Sounds familiar, right? Remember, this was four years before YouTube was created and six years before the release of the iPhone. We were building video codecs so that people could watch video online. And, you know, things that we take for granted today with YouTube and with Vimeo and all these streaming services of just being able to watch video and then going to the next video and categorizing videos and linking videos. These were all things that I remember having to build from scratch because there wasn't anything like it. It was fun work for a guy just out of college. Chow went to Amsterdam to help film the Cannabis Cup, which he calls the Oscars of the marijuana industry and around the United States, marketing to college youth culture. Everything was going swimmingly until one morning when his roommate jostled him awake. I still remember very specifically my roommate coming in and saying, hey, man, you should turn the TV on. Something crazy is happening. He switched on the set and climbed the steps to his apartment roof. We were living in Brooklyn right across, right across the river from downtown. I remember going to my roof and being able to see the smoke coming out. And we could even see the... Um, the building, uh, the World Trade Center, because it was such a tall uh, 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 set of towers across the river. We, I saw it all happen. And then I was constantly going you know, from upstairs to downstairs where I could see on the TV what was going on. It was, it, was a, it was a pretty traumatic day. One day was a disruptor and a game changer for Chow. 9-11 wreaked havoc on New York City and the economy. It tested the nation's nerves. The dot-com's venture capitalists pulled out, and Chow's job went up in smoke. And those circumstances were very different than they are in 2020. The national crisis then had a similar effect on him as events lately have had on people in America. Suddenly, change was not a choice anymore. This is Ohio State's Inspire podcast, a production of the College of Education and Human Ecology. I'm Robin Chenoweth. 9-11 drew a line in the sand for Chow. I, I think a lot about, you know, days that had a major impact on my life. I think that one, that one was definitely, I think for a lot of us, right, that, that one has had a, had a big impact. But for me, particularly in that it shut down the company and it really forced me to, to think about what I was doing, right? At the time, working at a dot-com was fun. I mean, it was a lot of fun in that 
there was a lot of attention in being involved in the media and being, you know, involved in a sexy new company and a website that was trying to cater to youth culture. But, you know, I, I really questioned what it was all worth after 9-11 happened. How is this actually making the world a better place? How is this supporting and connecting with the people who, um, you know, really need and deserve the love um, that maybe the school system or the government or society is not giving them? Losing his job allowed him the space to imagine the possibility of change. And while he was out of work and freelancing as a computer programmer to pay the bills, a bit of serendipity happened. His landlord asked Chow to tutor his son in algebra. Now you would think that to become a professor who teaches and researches mathematics education, he would have to love math. But Chow had an indifferent and maybe even a borderline antagonistic relationship with mathematics. And that stemmed from a type of racial typecasting that occurred in his youth. Chow was born in New York to Chinese immigrant parents. His dad worked in sales for a petrochemicals company, and they moved around a lot. The family even spent a few years in Taipei, Taiwan, where Chow attended an American school and had the surreal experience of looking like the Chinese immigrant students there, but not being able to talk or relate to them. Being in a space in which ethnically I was part of the majority group, I was part of the dominant group in which everyone looked like me and I could see people who looked like my parents, who looked like my grandparents all around me. And yet also because we spoke English and I was an American citizen and I went to an American school and my parents, um, they could speak Mandarin, but they mainly spoke Cantonese, which is the language that they grew up in in Southern China. We were definitely foreigners. Right? We were seen as outsiders within, within Taiwanese culture. He remembers asking a cafeteria worker to help him decipher the bad Chinese translations on the lunch menu. The person responded in Chinese, and when he didn't understand, kept saying it louder and more slowly, but still in Chinese. I was a second grader, six or seven years old. I just moved to the country, and I was really just taken aback. And I, th- I think I broke down and started crying because I, I had no idea why this person was sort of yelling at me. I felt they were yelling at me in Chinese because I didn't understand the language, and yet I was trying to get lunch. <laughs> right? And so I, I think there, there are situations in which I felt like I was living in between multiple worlds. As a second-generation, ethnically Chinese-American, that feeling of living in multiple worlds and not fitting well in any of them didn't go away. Back in the States, teachers advanced him a grade level in middle school math, and he was steered toward mathy pursuits in high school. You know, I was always encouraged by my teachers to do things like join the engineering society, um, join the math club. And I I actually, I did a little bit of them, but I, I didn't want to be stereotyped as a nerd. Right, as, as this Chinese-American nerd who loves and does all this math. And so I you know, joined the football team. I joined debate, um, the debate club. I wrote for the high school newspaper. I tried very much to do things that were different than the stereotype of what it meant to be someone in the math club. Without considering it, his teachers were advancing model minority stereotypes, Cultural expectations placed on Asian Americans to be smart, naturally good in STEM fields, hardworking, and self-reliant. And he was actively rejecting them. Math was always something that came um, 
relatively easy to me. And I think a lot of people who do math say that. But when I really start to reflect upon it and bring it apart, it's maybe perhaps not that math was easy for me. It's that everyone around me assumed that I had a natural instinct to math, partially because I was a Chinese-American male and because it fits stereotypes of who is and who isn't good at math. And here's the fallout. He ran so hard away from those labels that he could have bypassed mathematics altogether. And I actively tried to not engage in my own math courses, you know, much to my own detriment. I think I floated through a lot of my pre-calculus, my calculus courses doing the bare minimum because I, I didn't want to be stereotyped as the kid who always went to the board, who always got good grades. It wasn't until I got to college that I definitely felt a space to engage in math and some of the things that I love doing again. And so I declared computer science as my major, but I also, I double majored. I was also in the film and media studies program, partially because I love media a lot, but I also didn't want to completely situate myself in only the engineering program. Which brings us back to the weeks and the months after 9-11, when Chow's landlord asked him to tutor his son. The boy's name was Chris, and he was suffering the way many children do through his dreaded eighth grade algebra class. This poor kid was just following along, copying the notes and doing everything and then trying to do his homework and realizing that the problems in his homework were not exactly like these example problems in school and not knowing what to do, right? He was taught how to follow as opposed to given the opportunity to develop his own thinking and his own problem-solving ability. Which gave Chow a point of comparison to his own middle school experience. Chris's class probably had a teacher-student ratio of 1 to 30. Chow's learning was wholly different because he had been identified as gifted at math and attended a high school that offered higher-level courses. And so I saw immediately, I'm like, there's such a disconnect here because I was a child who, because I was pushed into these honors courses, because I was pushed into these accelerated math classes, I was always in small groups and given opportunities to really think through and work with my peers to have a lot of fun with math. And I had never myself experienced a math in which you're told what to do. You're told this is how you get the right answer. And if you keep doing this procedure, then you get the answer and that's it. That's all you need to understand. And I remember very specifically like that I saw that this was a huge problem, it, not just in in math, but just in the way that society treats children, that only children who show promise or children who fit a certain stereotype are allowed to think and everyone else is told to follow. Tutoring Chris allowed Chow to see that math was being used as a gatekeeper in the American educational system. People who score well on achievement tests take algebra as early as seventh grade which sets them on a path of taking higher level classes in all subjects. These honors classes allow them a greater chance to score well on college placement tests, which gives them a better crack at getting into college. That same algebra class that Chris was fighting to pass, it's the biggest arbitrator of who makes it into college and who doesn't. And whether Chris continued on to take another algebra class could correlate to how much he earns. The higher the level of math, the higher his income, research shows. Chow began to obsess about how to teach Chris differently so that he could interact with algebra on new levels. You know, this is the early days of the internet even, right? So it wasn't like today where you could find all sorts of YouTube videos and lesson plans online. I was scouring through all the text, looking through things of really trying to get, of, of engaging him in really amazing and deep algebra problems, you know, not 
these standard problems that have one answer, you know, a train leaves Baltimore at this time and another train leaves Philadelphia at this time, figure out when they meet. But problems that had multiple solutions or, or complicated enough that you never really are sure that you've got it right. You just have to justify it. And that was fun. Chow spent hours preparing lessons, putting off the freelance programming work that he was beginning to hate. In the chaos that was 2001 and 2002, it became clear that he had reached a crossroads. He could wait until he got hired by another startup, or he could use his knowledge, compassion, and his own marginalization to make a change for others. So he enrolled in an alternative teaching certification program for New York City schools. I did alternative certification that um, gave me an emergency credential so that I was directly in the classroom. I mean, I basically had, I think, 12 weeks of training in a summer, and then I was thrown into a classroom right away. And while I was in the classroom, I was going to work on my master's part-time, I think, two nights a week. He was assigned to IS-318 in Brooklyn. I taught at IS-318, um, uh, Eugenio um, de Hostos Intermediate School in South Williamsburg, sort of the intersection of uh, Williamsburg, uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant, and Crown Heights in Brooklyn, New York. The same middle school that rapper Jay-Z attended, and later the backdrop to his music video, Hard Knock Life. You know it's hell when I come through. In his uh, music, he talks a lot about the environment he grew up in, uh, the Marcy projects and places like that. I got to see what that community and what that world was like beyond the stereotypes and even beyond the sort of glorification that he uses in his music about how rough and how difficult this neighborhood is and and really see it for the the vibrant community it was. His students were African-American, Dominican, Puerto Rican, Bangladeshi, Indian, Russian, Polish all mixed together in this one school in Brooklyn. It was fascinating to me, being in an environment in which you have these multiple generations of immigrant families um, and all sort of shared under the banner that they're not white. And even a lot of the Polish students, what was interesting was they were ethnically would be able to pass as white, but given the the, the demographics of the school and the, the communities they're from, they definitely were more positioned as new immigrants to the United States. Chow quickly moved beyond the tropes of working in rough, drug-infested Brooklyn neighborhoods. What I really saw in the communities that I was in is a really loving network of people who might have been first or second generation immigrants, of communities who had been uh, collectively together in New York for multiple generations, and a real shift from one immigrant group to another. The teachers, who were themselves second- and third-generation Irish, Italian, or German immigrants and had grown up there, were now teaching children who came from the Caribbean, Africa, and Asia. It's the same story of American immigration retold, but with people who racially and ethnically look different. His initial thought was he'd go to IS-318 to learn to become a better teacher. But he quickly discovered it wasn't going to be that easy. What I've learned is that a lot of the curriculum that I have to teach, a lot of the things that I have to cover as a math teacher are actually not really good for children's actual thinking. A lot of it is children having to learn how to regurgitate material. Like, for instance, I remember having to do countless lessons on children being able to convert between ounces and cups and leaders and all sorts of different measurements that in in the world of 2020, everyone wants a phone can just like ask their phone to do it for them. 
I remember having this feeling as a teacher of like, what am I doing? What am I doing? Am I, am I doing what I thought I would do? Am I actually helping children learn to become critical thinkers and become leaders of their own communities and be able to change the world around them? Or am I focusing on helping them become more and more obedient, to learn to stop questioning the world around them, to learn to stop making sense of the world around them and to just listen and follow? And so Chow decided it wasn't enough for him to teach. He wanted to change the way mathematics is presented to students. He began applying to PhD programs and then was offered funding to be a part of a research project at the University of Texas. It ended up being a life-changing experience for me. I was able to focus fully on scholarship and unpack a lot of the, the things that I now know about how mathematics is taught and how it's taught in ways that actually depower a lot of children. He learned a lot of things, that standardizing a mathematics curriculum often takes power away from the teachers who need to adjust their teaching to the dynamics of their particular classrooms, and that after decades and decades, mathematics teaching remains formulaic, which misses the point of teaching children to think for themselves and to do so creatively. I'm not trying to say that they all do this, but I feel like a lot of times what we see in urban elementary schools is teachers talking at the kids and telling them what to do as opposed to opening up spaces for children to come up with their own thinking, their own reasoning, and listening to that thinking and following it. Doing worksheets, following procedures, memorizing names of geometric shapes and algebraic formulas. Okay, everybody, today we're going to learn about polygons. So everybody knows that if it's a four-sided polygon, it's a quadrilateral. If it's a five-sided polygon... The disconnected type of learning that a significant portion of people despise. It's not the type of teaching that's going on in affluent schools either. There, a more engaged teacher might say something like this. Hey, I have a bunch of uh, rods here and like a bunch of marshmallows. Let's all create shapes together. Then why don't we try to figure out ways that we can categorize the shapes and talk about them? And then now children are not just engaged in shape creation, but also in the categorization and really understanding the complexity of uh, the relationship between the, the number of sides, the number of angles, the size of the angles, and how they come together. And then in the end, oh, you know what, by the way, like, why don't we give a name for all these four-sided shapes? You know, mathematicians use this term. We can use this term, or we can use our own term. And so when you have a, a space where children can play and explore things on their own, then the math becomes a lot more real to them. Then it becomes a lot more significant and easy for them to remember. Chow calls that brand of teaching the inquiry model. And his research shows that it works to explain math to almost any child because it teaches them to figure out answers on their own. So why isn't this highly engaging type of learning happening more, especially in struggling schools that serve marginalized children? Lack of resources and class size are two reasons. State testing pressures are another. But one major cause is that it requires a shift in thinking because it's not the way most of us were taught. Many of us, we, we have never experienced teaching where we're given the ability to solve problems and, and think out loud and play. We've only experienced mathematics as being extremely uh, procedural based on a teacher telling us what to do and then being made to feel dumb or stupid because we didn't regurgitate an answer quick enough. This is actually a, a major issue with mathematics is that I think the majority of Americans carry some sort of trauma related to something that happened to them in a math class somewhere in their, in their childhood. So for all those who thought they had some sort of math deficit, a brain that just doesn't work that way, let go of all that math phobia. We are all intuitively mathematicians, Chow says. 
because mathematics is integrated into our everyday lives in ways that we don't even recognize. It's all the way that the numbers and the angles and the data are presented. That's a message that marginalized students in particular need to hear. Chow's prestigious new National Science Foundation Early Career Grant will help him to throw off the shackles of standard math teaching. What I found is that many of the narratives that we have, particularly the math problems that, we, that our students see again and again and again in the curriculum, are oftentimes imaginary problems that exist within a very uh, specific white middle class setting. The number of parking spaces at the shopping mall, the distance between airport terminals, the angle of a bank shot striking the eight ball. All of these white, middle-class norms that work their way into curriculum. Chow's study will put his film degree to work by using digital storytelling to make mathematics relevant to kids. It stems from an observation he had at IS 318 in Brooklyn. And I found that when my students would create problems based on their own worlds, they were so much more rich and so much more real. And it positioned that they themselves and their family members had deep mathematical knowledge. My hope is in this grant is to be able to create some mechanism that children can create videos, can create visual narrative stories of the rich mathematics that they encounter in their lives, in their communities, and ways in which these stories can then be used by teachers to then have deep mathematical conversations in the classroom and that everyone engages in problem solving. He piloted the idea with a group of fourth graders in Columbus, Ohio. One student created a short video of her mother and aunts bumping around their small kitchen to cook Sunday dinner for their combined families. How they managed to, to cook seven dishes to all come out hot and ready at the exact same time so that your dinner is ready to eat. The video is short, but she just showed like the shorthand vernacular that the, the aunts and the moms were so used to. Get the water boiling. Okay, you're moving this, you know, you're moving the greens from here to here. Yes. Okay. Is this ready? When's the, you know, when are we going to preheat the oven? And there was so much intricate mathematics involved. Oh, how many people are we going to have? Oh, you know, normally I make enough for four people, but tonight we have 16 people. So let me multiply this recipe by four times. It's all flowing naturally in the kitchen. The fourth grader is there to document a lot of it. She's just videotaping laughter, fun, and a lot of mathematical talk happening. It was fascinating because here was uh, a, a little girl of color and her family all presenting as mathematical people, doing a really intricate math problem of figuring out how to cook all this food at the same time, um, and then doing it with a lot of confidence and a lot of joy and a lot of fun. Chow premiered the video to the students and their families at a gathering. Afterward, one student said to the little girl who created the video, I never saw your mom as a mathematician. It was a full circle moment for Chow. Here it is, right? The, the, the representation matters. Her, the, this child and, 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 the, and the children in the, in, in the classroom seeing each other, not just seeing a mathematician or as a math teacher as someone who stereotypically is a white or an Asian male, not seeing a teacher as having mathematical knowledge, but seeing that mathematical knowledge exists within the people that look like them, the role models they have in their communities, the people in their families. And then seeing the rich mathematics that happens in an everyday occurrence in the household. Which in some ways rights the wrong of Chow's teachers singling him out and pointing him to mathematics as a child. It corrects the stereotyping. We are all mathematicians. 
the black fourth grader and her aunts cooking dinner, the landlord's son who needed to better relate to algebra, and the Chinese-American professor who, but for losing his job, almost missed out on helping people see how relatable and fun math can be, if only they are properly introduced to it. 